Well, good afternoon, sir. Good morning. Good morning. I don't have anything higher than that. That's fine. Well, it's also the afternoon. So, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's the afternoon. See, that's, <laughs> still, got, still got COVID brain. Do you know where you are right now? Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> where are you actually? I am in Los Angeles. I am recovering. I no longer have COVID, but I still have like, I still COVID. have, I'm not, I don't feel great, but, I, <laughs> but I'm, I'm COVID negative now. I'm testing negative. Yeah. It's been a moment. It's been a, it's been a tricky beat having this the second time. It wasn't that bad, but it's, it's not that great. Well, either. I don't think people are, well, I don't think you or other people are giving people as much slack as when they had it before. Like, oh, well you need to go hide for two weeks. Now it's yeah. like. Okay, that's the cold. Just get over it. And if people get sick on the ship now. They isolate them for five to six days and then they're back to work. Like it's a common cold or something. Even if they test because they're going to continue to test positive. But apparently after six days, you're no longer able to give it to people. Maybe. I guess we figured that out or that's just ships. We just ship decided world. the ship people decided that. Yeah, no, I think that that is stuff. the thing in the world now is like, okay, five to six days. That's all you get. Then, then yeah, back to the world. I went to see A Few Good Men at La Mirada Theater here in California. It was a play. It was interesting to see all the people in the audience with no masks. That's the first oh, time I've been to the theater with no masks. Is that masks. where you got the COVID? No. No, <laughs> that was last night. No, I got okay. the, no, I got the COVID traveling. <gasps> oh, the Petri dish. That's right. The Petri dish, exactly. So I'm still, I still got a cough. And just tired all the time. And Well, definitely get it together before the holidays come come around, exactly. you know, this is now well, the now time. I'm, now I'm immune, right? Because I'm immune for like three months. So I like, sure. it's like I, I can see all of family <laughs> and I ain't going to give it to anybody. I ain't going to get it from anybody. Unless so. you're literally just like give, walking around giving it to everybody. This is, it's fine. There's always one. But yeah. you're doing great. You're keeping it together. I know you've got a lot going on. Well. What about you? you? You had a birthday going on, right? With oh your my daughter. gosh. Is it just me or does November have 8 million birthdays? It's just it's something out February, yeah. Valentine's Day. That's what's going on here. Oh, you're right. Yes. So everybody's not keeping in their pants on Valentine's Day and then November is just. And they're all, Scorp they're all Scorpios. All Scorpios. Right? Yeah. Which, you know, not a bad sign to have a bunch of. But my daughter, yes, is a Scorpio. And her birthday is technically tomorrow, but we did a big unicorn festival of sorts with the jump castles, the cakes, ordered what I like to describe as 50 cubic feet of pizza that eventually I was just giving away as like goodbye gifts. Like, you take a pizza, you take a pizza. You take a pizza. But no, it was really fun. And for her birthday, we're going to go to Waffle House because that's where she wants to go for her birthday lunch. Look. Look, and, <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with that. I love me. Some I was like, I don't agree. I don't disagree. Let's go. This seems like the least high maintenance lunch that we can do. Come to Charleston. Can we go to Waffle House? Oh, please? that is the first place we'll go. We're <laughs> gonna go. The hash brown moment. Yes, yes, and that you know, just preparing for your arrival in a few weeks. Not even that much longer. So get <laughs> your COVID in check, please. No, no more COVID. Yes, we're over it, but. I really do hope you feel better. I'm, Thank you very you much. Know, and hopefully well, let's talk about let's talk about who we're going to have on the. Program. Oh, yes. Today we have an awesome person who is helping so many people out there and certainly I think helped us today and think that we talked about this off air, but she's doing things that are, I think, important to what is going on in society right now and basically couldn't 
have asked for a better person on this Sunday afternoon when we were both exhausted because she kept us lively and mindful. So today, I'll go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about who we have on today. Please do. Joelle Miletus is a licensed clinical psychotherapist, trauma expert, TED-Ed speaker and author, CEO and podcast host for Switch as well as Bipolar Girl. For veterans and first responders, trauma impacts them on one of the highest levels and without the right help can lead to daily struggles interrupting their lives. Due to her expertise in PTSD and trauma, 75% of Joelle's clients are veterans, active duty military, and first responders, that she helps overcome trauma in order to live the meaningful and balanced lives they deserve. Joelle also helps those with eating disorders and other forms of trauma. As a psychotherapist, Joelle believes that with the right help, everyone has the ability to thrive through their adversity, which is why her goal is to help clients by giving them the tools and knowledge they need to make peace with their trauma. So without further ado, we give you Joelle Miletus. Okay. Hi. Hi, Joelle. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. How are you doing today? I am good. I'm doing okay today. I went out for a walk this morning, so I feel calm and I don't know, as collected as I can be. Good. You're ahead of all of us, I think, today. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we are so excited to have you on today. We've talked to a variety of therapists, but everybody kind of has their own specialties. And yeah. it seems like you've got a little bit of a different angle than we've had on before. So that's exciting. But we really just kind of want to start out with you giving us a little bit of background about yourself, kind of where you grew up and how you got involved with therapy as a profession. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area. So Cupertino, anytime you get your iPhone and it tells you where the weather is, oh, that's, that's so actually true. where I grew up. <laughs> Forgot about that. I, I, long before Apple. No. Yeah. So yeah, and how to get into therapy, I joke and say it's really not a, a very meet cute story. It was sort of a dart and dartboard experience. I had a lot of trauma, I had a lot of PTSD, was in therapy, had a career-ending injury. I was a dancer by training and did that for 22 years professionally and found myself divorced with a one and three-year-old in Silicon Valley and went, well, dancing's not going to pay the bills. And I was running a, a university dance department at the time and went, I don't want to talk about Martha Graham. Like, I, I don't want to lecture about dance history. That sounds terrible. And the economy was good. I'm like, all right, well, let's give this therapy thing a try. And my therapist was super supportive. She's still my therapist after all of these years. And she was like, eh, I don't know if this is the right path for you. Really? And it was really funny. And not in a mean sort of way, but in a like, you sure you want to do trauma? And then I did my dissertation on broad spectrum eating disorders and trauma and addiction. And remember, I'm a ballerina, so we can draw the dots here. Yeah. And again, it was like, are you sure you want to do that? That's going to be really triggering and difficult and maybe not the best approach, maybe like doing something more just general therapy wise. And so it was an interesting journey. And the more I was working on myself and the more I was studying, the more I felt like I was in the fetal position all the time. And it, it took a while to kind of balance out being a therapist that works with trauma and became a trauma expert and having trauma and like being in it all the time. And what did that look like? So. And separating so it doesn't trigger you when you're helping someone else. Right. And after all these years, there are moments where it is still triggering. And and now it's 
all about training and having the support that I need and also just understanding what's mine versus what's the client's. So when those triggers come up, a lot of times now I use somatic or just this body experience of, wow, I feel really heavy in this moment or my stomach's kind of nauseous, my heart's racing. Is that what you're feeling, right? Is that what you're experiencing? And the clients will say, no, that's not me. And I'm like, oh, that's all my stuff. Okay, that goes off to the side. We're not talking about that. Or sometimes clients will say, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And I'm like, ah, okay, let's talk about that. So I've learned really to use sort of my own intuition and my own somatic experience of what's triggered or that what we call countertransference, that what comes up and then check in with clients of, is this me or is this you, right? So we can do the work for them. Gotcha. So can you tell us what JRMNA is and what services do you offer? Yeah, so it's a traditional therapy clinic. I run it like a private practice setting. So we are a small mental health clinic. I've got the best amazing team ever. We just won an award. I'm super excited about it. So we won an award from DOD about working with veterans, but also employing veterans. So we were one of two mental health facilities in the entire U.S. that received the award. So super excited. So I've got this incredible team of people that are trauma-informed, trauma-focused, and that's all we do. So we see people in California, and then I have clients in multiple states. So in about 15 different states, and we work on all different kinds of trauma and people from a lot of different populations. So in California, we have a really unique blend of people from all walks of life with all different descriptors and and this intersect of descriptors. So a lot of times people will say, well, I belong to multiple groups, whether it's ethnicity, culture, religion, gender identity, sexual identity, and that intersection of where people get stuck. And so that's what we started with. We're PTSD experts. And so we are one of few that works with military and first responders. We work with ICU nurses. We work with immigrants and refugees. And that's about 80% of the practice. And the other 20% of the practice is C-suite, Apple, Google, LinkedIn, those kinds of those kinds of folks that come in. And so it's a strange practice, but that's what JRMNA is. Do you typically work with active military members or are they usually, mm-hmm. are they've gotten out? No. So we're one of very few that we're all a true, I'm a true civilian. And then I do have team members that are retired military. One is still actually in the military and then they work for me as well. And so we see active duty military members and we see special forces, special operations teams as well. So we have a very unique niche of what we do. Wow. That's just great that y'all focus that much on that because I think it's very much needed. I'm former army spouse. And that was, I think, something that was lacking in a lot of ways as far as even just getting the stigma off of finding help and basically following through and not feeling like you're going to get punished or something like that, especially on base when you have counselors. Yeah. And they're told to toughen up. Everything's toughen up, shut up, tough up, get back out there. And so they start, I can imagine they just bury things and bury things and bury things. And then If you don't deal with it, it'll deal with you for sure. So it's great that y'all are doing that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess kind of personally, you mentioned this a little bit before, but would love if you could elaborate a little bit on what made you particularly interested in helping others work through trauma in and of itself. Like what kind of trauma did you go through and what drew you to do that in your profession? 
Yeah, so I had a lot of different kinds of traumas. And traditionally, we used to couch it as big T trauma, right? Something that was this horrific event that somebody experienced. It could be a car accident, could be war, versus little t trauma, which was something that we witnessed. The world of psychology has moved away from that, I think, a lot. And trauma now is one, in the for me, in the eyes of the beholder, and two, what if it's traumatic for this one particular person, it doesn't have to be traumatic for me, right? It Mm -hmm. may meet all the markers for trauma. And so I had early childhood trauma, relational trauma, and some other things that just all started to stack up and had no idea. I just thought that I had a hard time managing emotions or a hard time managing relationships. And it wasn't really until I started going to therapy, I had postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And that's where it started was all of a sudden my world was starting to crash down around me and I didn't know what was going on. And and it wasn't until I was through that, that I started to unpack the years of stuff and, and trauma from being a professional athlete and a dancer. And there were so many things in so many buckets, right? And how I started to pull that apart, I really needed help. And I needed an expert to help me figure that out. And then was diagnosed with PTSD. And at that point, I have the most amazing therapist. I still talk to her, but I had had a couple of pretty terrible ones. And I remember thinking, I don't ever want somebody to go through that, right? And that was the tipping point of like, okay, let me go to psych school and see what this looks like. I also at that time had been trained as a Reiki healer. I had been trained in somatic energy release work. And playing around, I think, with some of that stuff on the side and people were coming to me with pretty severe trauma and I didn't know how to hold it all. And so I'm like, well, maybe I'll just take a psych class in trauma. And I I really didn't know. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it started to just call to me and made sense. And I think part of it is I joke and say, all of us that go to psych school, like yeah, there, there's a certain kind of person that goes to psych school because who wants to do that much therapy? You do therapy on yourself. You write about therapy. You talk about therapy. You do therapy on your friends. Like you go to therapy. Who wants to do that much therapy? And so I think part of it was the more I was doing my own work, the more compelled I felt to figure out how to do that with other people. And it felt right. And I ended up loving it. And I was so worried. And after being a dancer for so long, I didn't know who I was. Can you speak more to that for people who don't know the rigors of being a professional ballet dancer and what's expected of you and how that could sort of create a traumatic experience while you're trying to do your craft? Yeah. And so hopefully if I, I typically don't talk about numbers. And so if that's triggering for folks listening, I, I apologize. And it, a lot of it was, I was five, two and a half, hippie, mouthy, that did not make for a good ballerina. In Balanchine times, ballerinas were like five, ten and, and taller and the same weight. And so I had a lot of experiences of, okay, well, you're 89 pounds. We need you to be 85 or we're not putting you on stage. I'm sorry, how tall are you? Five, two and a half. I didn't know we still talked about under the hundreds with people that were over the age of 10. Yeah. And that is so- scary. <laughs> This is 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and I couldn't do it. And so this is how messed up my thinking was. I would walk in and say to my friends, I failed at being anorexic. I can't even do that right. Like that was the thinking. And it was, I know, right? Shocking. And and part of it was I couldn't do what they needed me to do. And I wasn't that talented enough where I could 
be that sick and still perform. Yeah. Right. And so I was always skating on, okay, well, my body could not handle being that thin. And so I try and get to a weight that I could function at, but then I wouldn't get the roles. Right. So it was one of those things. And, and my dad, bless his heart, my dad finally said, go to New York, go to LA, make a change, but do something. And the joke was he'd pay for quote, my dance habit, but I had to go to college. And so I started racking up college degrees because dad would pay for college Mm -hmm. and I was able to still perform. And so there was a lot of pressure, right? And I felt like I was failing and the level of perfectionism required in the world of ballet to be competitive and and it's, you're competitive with yourself and you're competitive with everybody around you. It's toxic and it's hard. And so I didn't realize that that counted as trauma, right? I'm like, oh, I'm just a professional dancer. This is what it is. Par for the course. And I'm like, I signed up for this. You know what? That's why a lot of military people don't, don't want to have therapy because they're like, well, I signed up for this. I deserve this trauma. I knew it was coming. And it's not as bad, right? Well, that doesn't compare to somebody who went to war, yes. right? That doesn't compare to somebody who was beaten as a child. That doesn't compare. Like, so it was this constant, that's not trauma. Yeah. It's almost like people start normalizing it around you. Mm-hmm. So it's not supposed to be traumatic. Like you're fine. Just like yeah. you're supposed to be fine. Everybody else is dealing with it. And I, I noticed how you said like you weren't talented enough yeah. to, but is that a talent? Or is that just somebody being teetering on a full on breakdown at all times that right. they're not doing? I mean, I think we've all seen Black Swan on here that that was, <laughs> right. it doesn't always end well. So it was right. good of you to recognize that at the time. So I, I guess to piggyback off of that, you said you're not good at being anorexic. I know you also now specialize in helping people with eating disorders. So yeah. that's obviously something that you struggled with personally, how did Mm -hmm. you kind of overcome that? And how do you help others? Like what kind of methods do you use to help others realize and recognize what's going on and get them over that? Yeah. So interestingly enough, right, this started when I was a a child because I was being trained as a child and started dancing professionally at 16. And so this is stuff the child brain develops, right? So for me, it was like not all of the eating disorders, but many of them. And I was flying under the radar. And so that was really important for my story was I wasn't hospitalized. I was able to blame everything on dance. I would eat in front of people. And so I I had had all the tricks. And I don't know if we heal from it completely. I have my ups and downs. I still have my triggers. I think the difference is, is that I recover quickly from it now. So instead of it being something where I'm stuck in a cycle for months or years, I'm like, oh, okay, well, we're two days into this. This is not good behavior. And good behavior for me is going to be different than what good behavior is for somebody else, right? And so I'm able to catch it and go, okay, you know what? I'm working on this perfection thing, not perfect. Tomorrow's a new day. I get an opportunity to try it again. So I start with people there, right? Let's just work on, can we put it in a box and say, okay, today was a really bad day and tomorrow I get to try it again. That's all. I don't have to do anything different. I get to just try it again and starting really slow. We shame people, we use guilt, we do all of these things. We have this diet culture. 
now with filters and, and social media and all, all the things, right? This push to be aesthetically pleasing and young and, and especially in, in the world of film, technology, acting, dancing, all of that, anything aesthetic based, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not just in the film world and entertainment industries. It's also, it's in the straight world, but it is, it's very heavily in in the LGBTQ plus IA plus community, because Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just, that has its own set of expectations with us. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I I completely, I mean, I even feel the same as far as just growing up as a girl like when yes. you were yeah. younger, that it becomes the under the radar thing really hit home because it's like, I'm not throwing up, like I'm not doing this. So it's not as bad as somebody else, but I am keeping a journal of every calorie in fourth grade that's going into me. And that's not something yeah. I should be worried about. You know, that that's not what anybody right. should be worried about. But just I was a taller bigger kid than the other kids. And nobody like said to me, instead of like in your curriculum, they're so focused on, well, this is your BMI and this is where you need to be. And we need to work on being healthy. And I understand there's an obesity crisis, whatever, let's get that under control. But nobody took me aside and was like, you look, you're fine. You'll grow into yourself. Like you will be okay. Like this is not a, a matter of life or death because you are over this weight or that I'm not wearing limited to like my friends are anymore. And so it seems like a very broad spectrum issue. And I think people are still kind of weird about being open about it, even though I think our generation is specifically our generation. What are we called? Geriatric millennials. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, I think that we didn't have, I cannot imagine growing up in so like you mentioned with social media, with the pressures, with the filters, They literally have apps where you just press a button and it makes you skinnier and it is toxic in its own right. What drew you towards helping others overcome trauma and how do you individualize your treatment for each patient? So if you have someone who is, say, struggling with an eating disorder, how do you customize treatment for each each person? Yeah, I really didn't answer your question before, did I? Let me go back. (laughs) It's okay. We circle back. We do that. That's right. Let, let, Let me go back to the eating disorders, too because it's all similar. So I think with the eating disorder stuff, right, is our bodies have foods that are good for our body and not so good for our body, right? Our bodies like certain foods and it dislikes and certain foods. So getting out of this good, bad food paradigm, right? A calorie is a calorie is a calorie. It can come from a million different places, but when you look at science, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So getting out of this fixation on, well, these are good foods or these are bad foods or these are healthy food. Like it is so toxic and it's not helpful. So starting to work with how we think about what we put in our body. And so I start there with people and I really look at intuitive eating, some mindfulness around eating and also what's reasonable. And so I, you know, I can tell you a little bit about the issue with Oreo cookies. Forget this is not a product placement. I love them. I love them. They're not good for me. And the reason they're not good for me is two things. One, I have celiac, so the gluten alone is not a good plan. And even the gluten-free Oreo cookies, this is the other reason is is there's something about them that makes my brain go nutso. And I say that as a clinician. (laughs) Like there's something about it and I can't regulate 
and then I feel guilty and ashamed and I'm in this like horrific battle. And so here I am writing my dissertation, right? I'm writing about broad spectrum eating disorders. And what am I eating? Nothing. I am eating nothing during the day and then packages of Oreo cookies at night as I'm writing this. And it took me about three weeks. And I went, holy fuck, what am I doing? Like, like, Sometimes what it's is a little bit of a delay. Yeah, I mean. Right? So I tell that story, again, not to be triggering for listeners, but one, I'm human. Two, it is a struggle. It's a real struggle. And then how I learned how to work with that. So first things first was Oreo cookies were not allowed in the house. And when the kids wanted them, I would joke and say, just hide them in your room. Don't tell me where they are and we're okay. Because I cannot regulate. And so part of it was... That part of it was self-sabotage. I'd go to the store and I'd start putting them in the basket. And so now I have this rule, which is I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do that. I have to wait five minutes before I go check out. Because usually what will happen is by the time I walk around the store with a basket full of Oreo cookies, after a few minutes, it's like, do I really want this? And if the answer is I really want it, then my next question to myself is, okay, why? I know it doesn't make my body feel good. I'm allergic to it. I know it's going to make me feel guilty. I can't regulate. So am I willing? Am I willing to feel those things? Because I'm going to eat them all. And I have to be okay with that. And sometimes the answer is, yep, because that's what I'm going to do. It's like, okay, okay. And most of the time it's like, no, I'm too tired. I am actually too tired to go through all that shit. (laughs) Yes, all the not just the cookies, but everything. The mental gymnastics of justifying why this behavior for me is toxic, right? And so I take that and I start with clients and say, does that story resonate with you? They're honest. They'll say, nope. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's work with a different modality, right? A lot of times they're like, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's work on some skills. Let's work on some of this negative talk. And it's not focusing on food. It is not counting calories. It is not weighing food. It's not determining what foods are good, what foods are. It's like, does this make your body feel good? Right? And most of the time, people are like, no. So why are you doing it? And it has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do. Well, there was this one time when I did this horrible thing to somebody. Or there's this one time when something horrible happened to me. And I don't want to feel bad. Right? Food is love. Food is comfort. Food is an experience. Food is all of these things. I love food. I actually have a kid that's a chef, funny enough. But how we have a relationship with food isn't taught. Right? Oh, you're having a bad day. Here's a cookie. Yeah. Oh God, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I remember teachers did that. I mean, I I'm still guilty of it, but it's like I think what you said about you let yourself do it. Like I've been on every diet possible, Atkins, Paleo. I mean, all of it is usually bread is the devil. I know before kind of our generation, it was fat, everything fat, and it was the devil. But it's crazy, even. Now, or at a certain point, I basically said to myself, I feel like when I tell myself I can't have it, then that's when I want it. So I just went with kind of, I think it's a little bit what like Weight Watchers kind of tries to do, but there's all the points and there's whatever, but it's like, you can have whatever you want. Just don't go crazy on it. And once I said that to myself, like, you can have whatever you want, just like only have like one or try, just try to have just one piece of it or whatever. 
And it changed like every way I thought about everything. And now it's like, I was obsessed and I still do love salt and vinegar chips, but I'll be like, okay, I can have the little bag and go crazy. And just then now I, it's habit. I don't want to grab the big family size bag. It's like what she said before. <laughs> what's reasonable? Yeah. Like what is reasonable? This is fascinating because my one question is, what do you do if someone cannot get to that one thing that is triggering them to make them go want to eat? The Oreos. What if you're, you know, mm. you're someone and you you ask these questions? Why am I doing it? Why are you continuing to do it? If it makes your body feel that way, why? And they have a block. Have you ever had that where someone just cannot identify what is going on? Most of the time, I think ninety five percent of the time. Because if it were this easy, we'd all be doing it, right? Yeah, so true. <laughs> and I wouldn't have a job, which would actually be great if people were that <laughs> mentally well, right? If it were that easy, we'd be doing it. It's very painful. And it's like to come to the realization, an, an example of a couple of clients I've worked with in the past, it's too painful to realize that my mother didn't love me, right? And the way that love was expressed was by feeding me. Or I was bullied by kids for what I used to bring to lunch. We hear this a lot from kids, especially kids that are first generation. I get bullied over what I bring to lunch. And so now I'm a young adult and I'm having a hard time eating with peers, right? And that is so painful to access that we just don't want to. And so it takes a lot of very slow, let's work in the here and now. What are the behaviors that aren't working? And let's just try and address some of those without pushing too far in the past. So with trauma, we really want to go slow. And if we replace something then that's the key. I'm going to give you the skill and we're going to replace it with another skill. If I say, hey, get rid of this, all I do is I leave a hole for someone. And now they just have a giant hole. They're not going to do it, right? So we start with like, let's just go with the low-hanging fruit. And then over time, as people feel safe, the skills start working, they get to a point where they say, okay, this isn't working for me. Like I've done all of these things and I'm still really struggling. Ah, okay. Let's figure out why. So anytime we ask why questions, we push ourselves into process and we kind of snowball. And so in the beginning, I actually don't want to do that with clients. I want to actually go, okay, stop, stop the why. Let's not go backwards. Stop the why, stay with me present and tell me what, what do you need to do for yourself right now? How do you need to feel? right now. Let's work with those things and keep them forward moving. The why will come. I mean, that kind of, yeah, that kind of reminds me, like we, we talked to somebody, Robin Lansong out there. Mm -hmm. She's kind of brought up this point that, and kind of corrected Todd that he was like, well, don't you have to work through, like when you've got something going on, you need to go right to the heart of it and work through. And she's like, well, I'm going to stop you there. Because sometimes if you go right to the heart of it, it gets too overwhelming and then you don't want, you get like drawn out. You don't want to deal with it at all. So she's like, kind of stay on the edges of it. And then that, trauma. and then like slowly and get slowly, there. Which is what you were saying. You gotta, you gotta go slow with trauma. You can't just go to the heart of it because it, it will probably overwhelm you to a point where it's too, it's just too much. Right. And like you said, with certain communities, LGBTQI plus athletes, I'm really fascinated these days with athletes and mental health, right? And actors, singers, dancers, right? There, there are certain communities where 
to do something different, to go against the grain, makes you an outcast or it opens you up to not be accepted, right? And so it's hard to work with that. And so wanting people to find their place where they're like, I feel lighter. I never asked, do you feel better? Do you feel lighter in your body? I know you've, you've all referred to The Body Keeps the Score. It's my favorite mm. book, right? So if you look at like that somatic piece, right? So I asked, do you feel lighter? So when you say, to go with the chips example, right, that you gave, Laura, when you have a smaller bag versus a larger bag, do you feel lighter? Do you feel better in your body? And you're like, I do, because now I just do that. Does it matter who cares? So we like look at post-traumatic growth, that modality. We're looking at, and the so what, not so what, who cares? So what's important and what do we need to be doing? So when we look at that and we're like, do we actually need to know why that is? Do we need to open up the wound and pick up the scab of why you feel better? No, you feel better. Cool, right? You feel lighter. Cool. We may never need to know that. And so sometimes I think in our culture, right, this hustle, this we need to know why, we need to keep pushing, we need to have results, right? There's this idea that we also need to unpack everything in therapy. It's like, do we though? Because sometimes we don't. It's a really fascinating point. I agree. I think it's sometimes you're almost like not beating a dead horse, but you're just like, you're just yeah. picking at something to pick at something. At that point, if you feel better and you've moved on, we don't need to get right to the heart of the matter every time. And I guess you just deal with the triggers from that point on. Just like if, if you get triggered, like you feel better, you feel fine, you go on a couple of years and then somebody will say something or somebody will do something and that person gets triggered. Then it's, I guess, you tap into your therapy and your coping skills that you've developed to sort of not stay at the fair too long. Exactly. And so then part of it is, okay, when the skills stop holding, right? So a lot of times people, I don't see them for a few years. It's a good example. And they'll, you know, I'll get an email and they're like, hey, Joe, something's not working. It's like, okay, we outgrow our skills. We forget to use them. Me included. I teach this stuff and am still learning how to integrate it into my daily life and living. And that's a good time. Or sometimes that trigger opens up the why. So we don't need to know right now. But if there's something deeper, that trigger is going to open up the why. It's going to keep coming back. Yeah. I was thinking that, honestly. I was like, well, if it comes back later, then maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should dive into this. But if I think it's a really good point, like the coping skills thing, is that that's kind of how you develop these disorder ways of dealing with things is yeah. it's your coping skill that you learned from an early age. So the more you work in the opposite direction, you may not need to get to what caused the original coping skill and what's driving this new one. But eventually, if it's not sticking, or if maybe you're just like out of practice, then it can kind of rear back up. And deep-seated trauma, remember, it doesn't have to be this big catastrophic thing, Right it's going to keep nagging. And so the coping skills don't hold. They don't work all the time. We still come up with similar feelings, right? And then it's like, ah, okay, there's something there that's worth uncovering where there are other times where the coping skills work. It's the universal lines. It's the right time place for everything. And we're like, yeah, I don't even care why this, I just feel better. Yeah. Right. This is just working for me. Do you think that originally when you first got it, when you originally got into dance and then you decided to want to do it professionally, do you think you were trying to work through your trauma through this art form, this discipline, and then 
the eating disorder came while you were trying to put all of your trauma into this dancing stuff, which just triggered more issues? I have to actually think out of all of the podcasts I do, I've done, no one has asked me that question. No, no. I think it was the opposite. I think my mother was a concert level pianist and I think she envisioned her dancing instead of playing, right? Or she was dancing while she was playing. And it was a love-hate relationship. I was good enough at it and I struggled at it. And I eventually went into other forms of dance that I did better at. Part of it was my personality and it was a little more forgiving than ballet. No, I think the harder I tried to fit in and the higher the stakes were, the more the eating disorders were there. There was stuff going on in my early childhood life, the demands of being a perfect student, a perfect daughter, a per- like I had to do all of these things. I had to be a perfect dancer. I had a lot of pressure with, oh, okay, my family calls me Joey. And so, oh, Joey will perform for us. So there was this just constant drive and being the center of attention. And I think that dance allowed me to escape. And I could put on the mask and the costume and I could be whatever I wanted to be. And I didn't have to be me. And what I was really struggling with was it was too painful to be me. And so it gave me all of these excuses. And as I got older, the eating disorder was a way to hide because I could put it on that, not having to really look back at my life, right? Oh, well, I'm just a professional dancer now. That's what I do. I have all the problems that come along with it. Yeah, that's just part of who I am, right? It's this joie de vie that I, like, I had all of these really great excuses and I would put on this mask and I'd go to work. And later I realized that in some ways it was a form of dissociation. I could get away from having to be in the trauma and I could be in something that eventually became equally traumatic. So no, I don't think it was a way for me to work it out. I think it was a way for me to hide. I guess that's kind of somewhat related to the fact that, as we kind of discussed, the, the dance world almost is similar to these first responder jobs that I think that there is a little bit of that going on, that people that are already kind of struggling with their lives go into this to get away from all of that and be a helper. That's their way of giving back to society and not addressing their own stuff. But then while doing that, they end up with this additional trauma that is kind of like the cool trauma. I know that sounds really insensitive, but the trauma that everybody else is going through. And so then it makes it okay. So, I mean, that's just a personal observation. I feel like with being in the army, it's kind of like that tough man and women of, well, I had all this going on in my childhood, but this is who I am now. And now I just have what everybody else has, which is survivor's guilt or uh, some kind of incident while in battle. So I would love to hear how it was that you kind of got interested in helping veterans and first responders and how you can kind of, I would love to hear you also explain what the difference between PTSD and CPTSD is and how you treat them differently. So it's kind of a loaded question. Yeah. So I actually had no desire to work with military. I was an expert in trauma, trauma and then eating disorders, but trauma specifically. 
And with that became the study of post-traumatic stress versus the post-traumatic stress de-disordered. And I'll come back to that. And so as I became an expert in PTSD, I got to do TED. That was super exciting and fell into working with military and working with tier one special forces, special operations teams and military on that level. And my role has, I've done everything from watching film, reading reports, clearing people to go back to battle, to working with veterans. And so that was not what I thought I would ever do. Interestingly enough, I came from a military family. My dad went to military school. My grandfather, actually, again, grandfathers, uncles, great uncles, right, were in the military. So there was this familiarity of personality type that when I would sit with people who were in the military, I'm like, huh, I kind of get this. It feels comfortable. And it became very comfortable. And it was not easy, but there was something that resonated, even though my story was so different than people in the military and, and our traumas were different. I got to this place where it's like, well, look, if I can live with PTSD and get through my crap, then you can too. And so I think that's where it started for me was if I can do it, you can do it. I'm not that smart. I read a lot of books, cool, went to school, whatever. It was just one of those things where that really resonated for me. And I work with high level athletes and ballerinas and still do. And then these C-suite people and military, I've kind of got these three factions and their personality types are really similar in a lot of ways. But it was that resonating with PTSD specifically of like, if I can do it, you can do it. And I think part of it was this ideological place of selfless service. And that didn't resonate with me until I went to school where I was going to school for a lot of different reasons and it was really egocentric and a lot of it was to heal myself. And it wasn't until I started working with other people with trauma that it was like, ah, okay, I get this, right? I understand it in a way because I've been there even though our things are different, right? And so that's really how I got into working with military and looking at post-traumatic stress. So, which makes sense, right? We have something that's traumatic and we have a stress response. Our body does, our brain does, we do emotionally, we do relationally, we have this response. Makes total sense, why wouldn't we? That's what humans do. In fact, all animals do that, right? They have something traumatic, they have a stress response. So what makes it a disorder and why do some people develop de-disorder and other people don't? And so I look at that disordered piece of when it affects your daily life and living, right? So when that stress response, interferes with your daily life and living, and it causes a lack or less than functional life. So we're, we're not functioning anymore. or not functioning the way that we used to. And remember, I said I flew under the radar, so I did with my trauma too, because I got up and I went to work every day. And I didn't tell people how much I was suffering. And so again, dance was a way for me to hide and just not deal with it. And with military... I think that this idea of going into the military because there's a cause bigger than me, right? There's some reason usually why people are pulled to it, whether it's family legacy or a lot of people were post 9-11 military joiners. There's this something bigger than me and then something happens to me, right? And I'm not supposed to experience that. The other thing that's interesting about the ideology is that what I went through is not as bad as so-and-so. 
right? So what I went through is not as bad as the person that lost limbs and are now in a wheelchair, right? There's always this one-upping. My thing isn't as bad. So that's an interesting nuance working with military. I think elite athletes as well, that's not necessarily there with other kinds of trauma. And then CPTSD is this complex post-traumatic stress disorder originally was looked at in relationship. And so we looked at it for people who had multiple traumas, had early childhood trauma, had narcissistic parents or parents with mental illness who suffered abuse, and it was more relational. We now look at it as just multiple traumas. So somebody who doesn't have a car accident or a single episode where with post-traumatic stress disorder, it usually has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A car accident is a really good example, right? It's a single episode. It's something that's horrific. It happens traumatic. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't necessarily have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's relational. It's situational. It could be a child being bullied. It could be sexual harassment. It could be all sorts of things. And so I asked about how we treat them. The skills are the same. And so I think a lot of times it's picking a place to start. And so what... How do you do that? I know. Someone's got this myriad of trauma, like experience. I, I can't imagine what any, meeny, my, any, mo. you know, like where, where do you start? Not to be trivial, but like, how do you do that? People, they come in the first time and I heard somebody talk about it, a, a comedian. I cannot for the life of me remember his name, say that therapy was like dating, right? You have to find the right person. I believe that. I will tell you if you have a therapist that you're not crazy about, fire them, find another one. It's finding the person that you trust. There's a lot of great therapists out there. There's a lot of really shitty ones too. And ask us questions, interview us. Who do you work with? What do you like to work with? Are you trauma for? Ask questions, ask a lot of questions. So that's always my soapbox is there are good therapists out there. You may need to try a few on before you find the right one. And so I think when people come in and they tell me, and in narrative therapy, we call it the story. I'm not being dismissive, right? They tell me their story and they want to get it all in, in that first session. And a lot of times it's just that intuition, right? Or the art of doing therapy and picking up something. It's like, that's a lot of information. Do you feel anxious? Do you have a hard time sleeping? What are your relationships like? And people will be like, yeah, God, I get into a fight with my boss almost every other day. Okay. Is that something you want to work on? Yeah. It might be nice. There we go. That. That's, where we're, that's where we're going to start, right? Or Thanksgiving is coming up and I've got to go do family dinner and I don't want to go and my family's awful and they don't want to adhere to my boundaries. And it's like, okay, is that the place you want to start? It's just asking. People will tell you. Right. I may not pick that. If I got 15 different things, I want to go with the one that I'm like, aha. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's not where people want to start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you kind of have to tease out what you think is like, well, that's the heart of the matter there. But also, where are they willing to meet you and where are they willing to start is more important than just where you want to. If it's too much, too fast, people won't stay and it's damaging. Mm. Right. Yeah kind of goes to the like the edges can't go too full force or else it'll be too much and then it's you know at that point then you've lost all headway so it's kind of chiseling away in all aspects honestly so I mean that's very helpful to know and I think everybody should know out there that you should kind of interview your therapist but also it might just not be the right fit for you like they don't get you in some way and that's okay 
they might be a great fit for somebody else. Totally. And it doesn't matter what their training is. I tell clients all the time in our clinic and, and I train my staff, it's like three sessions, right? And I'm asking, how'd that work for you? How do you feel after this session? You want to try it again next week? Even clients I've seen for years, is this working? What works? What doesn't work? What do I need to do differently? I'm constantly checking in because if I'm not the right person, I will find you somebody great. You're not hurting my feelings. I would rather know that than you're like, it's all right. And then I, you ghost me and I never hear from you again. Like that's the worst feeling because I'm like, I don't know what I did. But it, in a lot of ways, right, it doesn't matter who I am. If I'm not the right fit and I am not the right fit for people, I am sarcastic. I call it as I see it. I am very directive. That does not work for all people. Yeah. I swear like a sailor, like yeah. you got to be into that. A yeah. Plus. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did have one client who finally said, you know what, Joe, I love working with you, but can you please stop with the F-bombs? It's triggering. And I'm like, oh, abs- yes, we absolutely can do that. And then my next question was, why is it triggering? And she looked at me, she goes, really? You had to make it about me, didn't you? And I'm like, yes. Well, you said trigger. So what was I supposed to do? You're in the therapy chair. This is- I'd like to yeah. um, shift gears real quick here. You also do career coaching for executives yeah. and other professionals. So who have you worked with and what all does that entail? And how do you help people sort of achieve their goals when they're in that kind of high level position? Yeah, so I work with a lot of C-suite. Interestingly enough, I thought and I, before I did the show today, I was kind of looking over some of like my demographics that I would say, oh, it's mostly women. That's not actually the case. I think I have an even amount of women and men that's interesting to me. So I work with a lot of C-suite and the difference between therapy and coaching is coaching really is about the here and now. What am I doing where I'm getting in my own way and what do I need to be doing differently so I can move forward and meet these goals that I'm setting for myself in the future? So coaching really isn't about doing the work on going backwards and looking at the patterns of thinking because of childhood trauma. A lot of times we'll look at patterns of thinking as far as like, where are we getting in our own way and why are we getting stuck? And it's goal oriented. Therapy really is about digging up a lot of this uncovered subconscious material that we create ideas about. So with coaching, it's shorter term. Usually people meet with me less often. They're not coming in weekly. They might come in once a month or once every couple of weeks. And it really is a lot of goal-based, hey, this is where I'm at. I want to be over here doing these things. We do a lot of goal identification in the beginning. We do a lot of work on values. What do you value and where are you out of alignment with your values? And then what do we need to do to help achieve those values? Where therapy, we would say, where are you out of alignment with your values? And what are the relational things that have happened in your lifetime that would cause you to do what you're doing now? So try and separate that out with coaching. Yeah, well, it sounds like I know that personally, just from doing some of the research that you've worked with a lot of people at Google, these big businesses, what, yeah. what is kind of like one of the major issues you find that people will have to battle within that? Yeah, so the middle of Silicon Valley, pre-COVID, it would be a different answer. I think pre-COVID was this idea of work-life balance, which I think is passe now. <laughs> that we've moved into COVID and we all work from home seven days a week, 24 seven. So now I think a lot of people that are coming in and I am in the middle of Silicon Valley. So that's primarily, we see a lot of high tech people 
and people that are tied to Stanford and Berkeley and, and other big universities coming in. And a lot of it is work-life balance, but in a different way of how do I get out of my own way? And a lot of times I think people are really struggling with, now I've got to wear all the hats all the time where before I could put the mom hat on, take the mom hat off, go to work, put the boss hat on, take that off, come home, put the spouse hat on, right? And it was more compartmentalized. And now it's like, no, I wear all the hats all the time. And I don't know where I show up in that. I don't know how I feel about any of it. I'm not performing to the level that I want to be at. I'm working way too many hours. I'm suffering. The kids are suffering. So it's a lot of that teasing these ideas out and working smarter, not harder. That has been the mantra for this year. Oh my working gosh. smarter, not harder. That's my favorite saying of all time. I mean, I can totally, I mean, just personally, I feel the same way as far as once it all blended together. Now you're working from home. It's almost like you're trying to do so many things that you can't do one thing well. So yeah. you're just kind of spreading yourself thin. And it's like, well, where, because, and I get jealous sometimes of people that they go to work, they have a shift and then they're out and then they don't have like homework, if you will, of like a to-do list to do that night to be ready for tomorrow. And I think that that is something that's like, I know you said it's kind of passe work-life balance, but really at the end of the day, that's still what we want. We still want to balance it all. It's just how do we make that work in a place that it's not as split? And it depends on if you have children, how old your children are, if you are with a partner or not, like all of that matters. I do a lot of work with women and it's very interesting to hear these divisions that have been, I mean, I remember when my kids were little, I'm now an empty nester. They're 20 and 22. But when they were little, I worked. I worked as a dancer. That is what I did, even with little children and my friends who didn't work. And this like, oh, the working moms versus the not working oh moms. Like it was such a thing. And I look back, I'm like, it's absolutely ridiculous to me. We've carried that through, right? People that choose to have children versus not having children. I mean, versus having children. There's this who's working harder. It, it's a ridiculous commentary. And so some of it is, getting people accustomed to what's the judgment? What's that really about? What are the fears? What's the shame? What's the guilt? And how do we get out of our own way, right? And and I'm guilty of it. I'm human. Yeah. I joke and say I'm one of the most judgy people you'll ever meet. But, you know, like, <laughs> but there's that piece, right, of like somebody who has children during COVID and everything shifting online was educator, parent, babysitter, playmate, and someone who didn't have children could have been isolated and just completely disconnected from the outside world, right? So it's like, what's better? Neither. Just they're different experiences. And so sometimes that's the therapy work too, is why? Why all of the judgments? Where does it come from? Because it comes from somewhere. A lot of seemingly a little bit of, it's like a kind of vicious cycle. It's like a peer pressure thing. Oh, that's what they're worrying about. So I should be worrying about that. And then you just kind of keep, it's like a feedback loop of, <laughs> well, they're doing that. But I mean, it's comparison too. I mean, constantly it's like the keeping up with the Joneses, but now on like mental health level of like, they're able to keep it together. Why can't I? Right. Because Instagram showed us that, oh, you know, there uh, right. Just the ridiculousness of negativity. Remember when that was a thing? Oh, 
right? Negativity was a thing. And now we've gone so far to the other side where now it's this toxic positivity. Oh, good vibes only. Yeah. Like, I know. My gosh. Like, no. Yeah. We're allowed to feel shitty. Yes. <laughs> so like you, we are very passionate here at for, about women's rights and equal opportunity and yeah. the LGBTQIA plus community. And we also, we want to send out our heartfelt there was a shooting at a, a gay bar in Colorado Springs last night. Yes. Yeah, still, it's like, it's when is it going to end? But what are some of the biggest obstacles you believe women, people of color, it's kind of a loaded question, women, people of color, and people from the LGBTQIA plus community face mental health wise today. And how can we help? Yeah. Timely, timely question because of the just atrocity of of last night, which is why I started the podcast saying I went out and took a walk because I needed to find my my center and, and grounding. So I'm I'm not so angry when I showed up today. I wish I had the magic answer. I wish it was an easy answer. And I don't know. I think part of it is not marginalizing people's experiences by putting people in buckets or in groups and just saying, what do you as a human, what do you need and how can I support you? Because I want to. And owning the fact that I, as a privileged white woman, and I'm just calling out me, I don't know what somebody else's experience is. And I want to be an ally. I want to be supportive. I want to lend my voice to that. And I need to be told by that person what they need from me, instead of me assuming that I know. And so with George Floyd, that changed the comments and it changed the commentary with being culturally competent to anti-racist. And that was fundamentally important for me as a human. It was important for me as a boss and a woman entrepreneur. And we did adopted that platform. Now, I went to a school that was one of the very first that had an LGBTQI plus certification with their master's degrees, and I got one. I'm very proud of that. And it's a community that I've supported as a dancer, as supported as an educator, and now as a therapist. And taking a different perspective of, no, I don't need to assume that I understand people's experiences. I need to ask was huge. It sounds simple right? Not simple. And so for me, that's where it started. And that's, that's where I'm at now, which is, I don't know. I don't know what so-and-so's experience is, right? Sam's experiences. So Sam, tell me, what do I need to know? And how do I provide support that feels right to you? Because Sam's experience is going to be different than somebody else's and certainly different than mine. Definitely. I think that that's, that's a very good way to look at it. I mean, think if anything, that also humanizes everybody. So it's not just like, oh, well, you're a black person. So you're clearly going to be mad about this. Or you're an immigrant. So you're going to be mad about that. Like it's how can we all best assist you during this time and seeing them as people? Because that seems to be kind of the huge divide and kind of what happens with war of seeing the other as non-human. And I think that we all need to start understanding that we all have the same basic fears and general desires and wants and needs. And a lot of that is just to be seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And that can look different to a lot of people though. So I, I really appreciate that message like that. That's yeah. very 110%. And Joelle is a person and a human and a voter. 
it is really important to me that I use my voice, I use my vote, and I practice what I preach and that people have rights and all people deserve rights. And it's hard sometimes to separate out therapist Joelle from human because that's so fundamentally important to me. And so that's why I say I'm not always the right therapist for people. That doesn't match. And and being a military psychologist with, with a certain set of opinions is fascinating, right? Because it doesn't always match. And that's okay. It doesn't have to. And so for me, I start there with you're human. I'm human. We have different experiences. I get that I have privilege. I get it. Yeah. And so I can't apologize for it because that's trite and demeaning, right? That's surface. So instead of moving to an apology, I move to, this is my world, right? Please tell me what yours looks like. Yeah. I think that's very powerful. And I, I think it goes towards kind of your methods in other ways of, I'm going to tell you something about me and you tell me if that resonates because that's yeah. going to tell a lot more than you just sitting there going, well, this is how you should feel and this is what you need to do. It's like, let's see where we are on the scale of understanding and then let's try to get closer. And I think that that happens a lot in friend groups so naturally, but then you get into work environments, you get into even just home life with parents and kids and that kind of becomes it's more of like, well, what do I do? What is supposed to happen here? And I, I think that all around, it's a really great method. And I want everybody to know also that you have an amazing TEDx talk about PTSD. Oh, it's top 10 of the mental you. health videos. It's clapping. Thank you. Thank you. You've been on so many podcasts. It's, it's just amazing to see you getting your message out and being advocating for all of this. And I want to also let everybody know that you will be releasing a self-love calendar correct? In yes. 2023 and yes. a trauma journal. Yes. So you got to keep us posted on all that. Oh, look at that. Oh, we get a preview. Oh man. It's, a pre it's the first preview I've shown. We just got it. We got the prototype. That's awesome. Oh, I love, love it. It's all skills, just easy, simple skills. No toxic positivity. I promise. Yeah. Not good. Just good vibes. <laughs> It doesn't even say that anywhere in there. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have uh, links to all of that, you. including your website, all the resources you have on there. Thank you. And just want to do whatever we can to help get your message out and appreciate everything you're doing. And we have a tradition on the show, though. You may know of it. I don't know. We usually ask a question of the day just to kind of round things out, make it a little bit less intense. And I think we bookended things well okay. with everything else you're doing. So I'd like to know, is there any job that you would never do? Oh my gosh. Okay. Having a kid who, my, my son's a chef and who has been in the food service industry, I think I would never do it. And not because it isn't noble work. It's because people treat the food service industry personnel so awful. I think I would end up just, I would cry. Gosh. I would just probably be in the corner crying. I would, yeah. So it sounds like it's just a miserable job. And 
bless those that are doing it. I think that I would just be like in the corner. Oh, preach. I honestly, I can't well, say Laura, enough. Laura owns a restaurant. So she, <laughs> I know. That's you, why I'm saying that. And the customer <laughs> is always right. So <laughs> even if you're crying in a corner, it's your fault. So no, People preach. Are so mean. Uh, the expectations so are mean. just out of control. It's like as I if you're a bartender and server for years. It's, it's the worst. I mean, people treat you like you're subhuman. It's just it's like it's it's like we're forcing them to eat the things. It's like you came here, you did this voluntarily. You came here, you wanted to eat food. That's all we're doing. I don't understand what this. Why is it so problematic? Are you so upset? What, what is triggering you right now? <laughs> I know I would probably end up doing there. No, I, you know it's so funny. I will tell you that when I'm like working with people that are having issues in relationships and especially dating, I'm like. Okay, forget this, meet somebody at your favorite coffee shop, fill in the blank, right? No, you want to go for dinner. Even if you pay for dinner, doesn't matter. You want to see how they treat Mm, the people that are serving on you. Because if they are rude to the service sector, they are going to treat you like crap. Yep. Yep. You heard it here first, people. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, I, even if I wasn't biased and in that environment, in and of itself, I think that's really great advice. I think that's like one of the big red flags of a narcissist too. So, right? <laughs> you know, just stay away, stay away. If they're mean to those people, it's yeah. I, I appreciate they're that answer. Be mean to you, yeah, yeah. So again, not not a noble work. Just it's hard, a thankless job. I'll tell you that. I guess. Thankless job. Well, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the program today. It's just been such a a joy and the work you're doing is really, really, really helping so many people. And I'm just excited for you and and all the things that are, that are happening for you and your business and your work with, with everybody and with veterans and and first responders and LGBT. I mean, you are just, you're really, really doing some great, great things for humanity. So really, really kudos to you. Thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. And we will be looking out for the self-love calendar and a trauma journal because I think we all could use both. So thank you. (laughs) All right. Have a great day. Thank you. You Bye. Hey, what'd you think? Oh, I thought she's, she's just so lovely and so smart and so on the current moment. She's just, she's very, very, very insightful I found her very easy to talk to, very personable. I can't say enough good things. I mean, being a former professional dancer, she felt like a, a, I didn't say this to her on the podcast, but she feels like a friend because I have so many friends who are professional dancers. So it it felt familiar. I found her to be very open. Yeah. I didn't know if we were going to be able to kind of get into the things that she had been through instead of kind of like the therapist, Joelle, and then the person, Joelle, but she's it seems like, and I really like this is like my kind of therapy of the relatable, like saying, you know, and I, I'm kind of guilty of it sometimes of doing that too much with people of like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I've got a story that like, I'm not trying to one up somebody, but just be like, oh, I know how that feels because this kind of thing happened to me. And it seems like she uses it in much better ways than I probably do. But I just like that she she doesn't try to be anybody else but herself. And she's very self-aware. Yes. And it's clear that she knows how to treat people. But I did like the fact that she owns the fact that she is very direct and very, you know, like a sailor. She, 
Yeah, like I said, that, that made me laugh so hard. But, but it's yeah, good if you're I, dealing I with veterans. Them. I mean, then they feel a little bit. I mean, I can kind of say I don't want to put everybody in a bucket, but I will say that's more of a cussing demographic than others. Yeah, she's the real deal. And I love that she still is also working on herself. And it's a constant. She reminded just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean I don't have triggers doesn't mean I'm not a human and that things don't still come up for me. And yeah, I just found her fascinating. And I found her very, like I said, very easy to talk to. Just very, very, very sweet. And we didn't even get to all the questions. We I know. Had, we had so I feel like we, like we skipped over so many because I was just she had such good answers for so many things. And if it weren't for time, we would have talked forever. But I think that she is addressing a lot of the main issues that are going on in our society right now with people. That part. And, yep. and I think that that, you know, as much as every other therapist doing a fantastic job as well, we're not putting anybody down, but I like her, her target issues and they're very contemporary. And the fact that she has a niche and works with veterans as well and first responders and like specifically and has a whole company that sort of is trained with that. It's so necessary. It's so needed, especially people who have been off to war. And I just think she's pretty great. Yeah, I like her. We'll have you. Thank you, Joelle. We will be Thank looking you, forward to having you back for sure. Now, wait a minute. I want to ask you. Wait, you have to do the question of the day, though. Oh yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. So let me ask you. I'm gonna ask. No, gonna okay. Ask okay. You. you asked me. Okay. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Okay, so, as uh, is, is there any job that you would never do? Because you have 15 million jobs. Yeah. So. And what's funny is I probably have 15 million jobs I would not do, but I'm going to try to narrow it down. I'd say number one is air conditioner repair person, because you know that when you're going to do that, it's not going to be a cool job. It's going to be yeah. hot. It's going right. to be very hot. And you got to be crawling under people's houses. Crawling under, over, around. In the attics and you don't know, oh, there's a, there's a living thing right there. What is going on? And they're hot. So they're mad. I mean, exactly. everybody is mad and there's, you never <laughs> can have good news other than I fixed it. And that was even a labor of intense intensity. I you're wanted right. nothing to do. You're with right. So the, the customer's mad because they're hot as hell. And then you get there and you're like, oh, I don't have the part for this. Yeah. Uh, you're going to stay hot. Oh, what a horrible job. Yeah. And then you just got to like <laughs> run away and hope they don't get mad at you. But you will always have a job. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Okay, there's a silver lining, actually, but I'm still never going to do it. Especially in Charleston where it gets hotter than hell. I will say that's maybe it's very specific to Charleston. If you're an air conditioner person in New York, it might not be as bad, but still it gets really hot there too. So, mm, so what's the job you would never do? Wait for it. I would never be a gynecologist. Oh, interesting. No, thank you. No, oh. thank you. More power to y'all. That that is great. The gynecologist of the world. I mean, I cannot imagine every day. Looking at the hoo ha. At the hoo ha. Every it would, it would just be. I just nope. No Things man. you'd probably see. I mean, it's not like in a fun way. I couldn't, I couldn't unsee. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. I can't, as a woman myself, <laughs> there's got to be some weird stuff out there. I thought you were going to be like, I can't be an attorney or something. Try to like. No, a gynecologist. Yeah, gynecologist seems. I think yeah. that about dentists though. And I, that, that seems less gross than a gynecologist. 
I can never be a gynecologist or a proctologist. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Now we're I've agreed. Add that to my 15 million <laughs> jobs. I would never do. Oh, basically anything body wise. That yeah, let's just say, yeah. <laughs> things are moving through. I don't like it. It's too much room for. Oh, God. <laughs> for things well, I don't to know go what bad. that says about, uh, says about me, but nope, well, I'm good. I think that you went into the right things. And I agree. I, I don't Ooh. think that's a great job either. Now, <laughs> now I want to change it, but I also stick by my air conditioning yeah, repairman. Air conditioning. It's great. It's actually great. <laughs> mad. Yeah. It, people are mad. It's just, you know, at least the gynecologists, they might be grateful for what you're doing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not a thankless job. Like, thank you for these antibiotics. I will now see myself out. <laughs> oh God, I just hit the microphone. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Well, you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your weekend. Joelle, we really can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Yes. Thank you so much for taking time out for us. And I'll put all the links to all the stuff. I'm telling you, she's done some really good interviews and her TEDx talk is really great. I'll put that up too. And and again, just thank you, Joelle. And as always, lovely to see you, Todd. You too, Laura. I'll see you next week. Sounds good. Yay. Bye. 